listening to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. Today, our guest is the author of a new book called From Death Row to Freedom, The Struggle for Racial Justice in the Pitts-Lee Case. The writer of this book is Philip Hubbard. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a, a pleasure and an honor for me to appear and uh, discuss with you what I think is a, a case of historic importance. Absolutely. But before we even begin, I'd like to tell our listeners a little bit about you before we delve into the book. You served for 19 years on the 3rd District Court of Appeal in Florida and also served 12 years as a public defender in Miami and Washington, D.C. You were an adjunct professor of law in Miami for 30 years and a defense attorney for both Freddie Pitts and Wilbert Lee for 10 years. Your book is 400 pages, and I have a question for you. Why, after 60 years... Did you decide to write this book? Because I, I wanted to make certain that this case was never forgotten. It's a piece of Florida history. It's a piece of Southern history. And I think it's a, ultimately a piece of American history. The most important case I was ever involved in. And um, I want to make certain that people don't forget about this case. They remember it. It's a, extremely important in our efforts to try to develop some type of racial reconciliation in the country today. And we have to face not only the wonderful times we've had in this country, but also some of the shortcomings, some of the defeats, and we have to face them directly. If we expect it, we can't, we can't minimize it and say, well, it didn't really happen. It happened. And yes. um, that's the reason I wrote the book. That's reason enough. All right, so we have a lot to cover. How about giving us a brief overview of the case? And let's begin by going back to 1963, to the place where this story begins. Well, the whole case arose outside a small southern town of Port St. Joe, Florida, which is located on the Gulf of Mexico on the eastern end of the uh, Florida Panhandle. And on the late evening hours of July 31st, 1963, at the height of the civil rights crisis in the South, two white filling station attendants at an all-night gas station were held up at gunpoint, kidnapped from the station, and found several days later murdered in a wooded rural area. $100 would have been taken from the station. Four weeks later, in a mindless rush for judgment, two young black men, Freddie Pitts and Wilbert Lee, were sentenced to death for these murders. Later, however, after a great deal of litigation and wrangling at the highest levels of the state government, in September 1975, Florida Governor Reuben Askew and the Florida Cabinet pardoned these two men on the ground of innocence. And in April of 1998, the Florida legislature awarded Pitts and Lee 
$500,000 apiece for their 12 years of wrongful imprisonment. So that's how the case all wound up. Right. That's a great overview. But of course, in between the night of July 31st, 1963, and their eventual exoneration about 12 years later, so much took place. So you focus on the events, the key events in the year 1963 to put this killing in an historical context. What were those events that year? Well, it's such an important question, Harriet, because this case sums up an entire era in the Deep South, which is the civil rights era of the 1960s, and it's emblematic of this entire area. And if you try to isolate this case from the era in which it arose, you're going to profoundly misunderstand what happened. In 1963, all kinds of things happened. I'll just touch on the more important ones. One of the most important ones was that Martin Luther King and his civil rights group launched a series of peaceful demonstrations in Birmingham, Alabama, against the segregated facilities in Birmingham. And that resulted in a violent police response in which the police chief and all the police officers used fire hoses on the demonstrators and vicious police dogs. And this, of course, was covered by the media and it shocked the whole nation. Then in June, a couple months later, Governor George Wallace stood in the entrance of the courthouse at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa and tried to block the entrance of two black students who had been admitted to the University of Alabama, and he was trying to stop them. There was a court order, federal court order, authorizing their entry, and he tried to stop it unsuccessfully, as it turns out. And that same day, and that same day, a civil rights worker, a very prominent one, Medgar Evers, was shot and killed in Jackson, Mississippi. And then in August 28th, which was the, the date on which Pitts and Lee were sentenced to death, uh, Martin Luther King was giving his great I Have a Dream speech at the foot of the Lincoln Memorial. And it was the highlight of the, of the three-day march on Washington for civil rights involving 250,000 demonstrators. And then finally, September 15th, which is only two weeks or so after Pitts and Lee were sentenced to death, the members of the Ku Klux Klan bombed the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, killing four little black girls, and that just shocked the nation and went all over the country. So they were sentenced, right, tried right in the middle of this a very turbulent era. It was not a time, by the way, where isolated and unconnected people like Pitts and Lee could stand up for their rights in the segregated South without incurring the ire and even the violence of prominent white people. And that's exactly what happened to Pitts and Lee. Right. What a year that was. How well I remember everything you just listed. How old were Pitts and Lee at the time of their arrest? Pitts was 19 years old, and he was stationed outside of Port St. Joe. He was a, a private in the U.S. Army. He was on maneuvers outside of Port St. Joe. Lee was a resident of Port St. Joe a long time. He was uh, 28 years old, both, both young men. Yes, indeed. Tell us a little bit. Uh, there's so many characters that 
are in this uh, this story or case. This one I'm going to mention is Fred Turner. What role did he play in this case? Fred Turner was the most prominent criminal lawyer in that circuit. And he was appointed by Judge Fitzpatrick, the trial judge, to represent Pitts and Lee. But Turner refused to investigate the case, refused to file any significant motions in the case, and he refused to present any defense for Pitts and Lee. On the contrary, he fully cooperated with the police and got Pitts and Lee to confess once more in the presence of Sheriff Doc Daffin, the Bay County Sheriff, and later to plead guilty in court. He denied it later. He said he never did that. But Sheriff Daffin testified to it uh, in court in August of 1963 that he was there and he reiterated it when I took his deposition. There's no question that uh, Turner was there. He was participating. He told Pitts and Lee the only way he could save their lives, they had to confess and they had to plead guilty and they had to get up on the stand at a mercy trial and repeat their confessions, and then make whatever statements they want to make. He prepared them for nothing. If anything, this man was a prosecutor. He was not a defense lawyer. I see. There were other key players, like Sheriff White and Willie Mae Lee. She was no relation to Lee. Well, uh, Deputy Sheriff Wayne White in Gulf County was one of the main investigators in the case. He witnessed, among other things, a savage beating that Bay County Sheriff George Kittrell inflicted on Pitts at the very early stages of the investigation. They took Pitts out on an all-night police ride to find the bodies of these two men. They hadn't found the bodies yet. And so they took him out all night. It was about 10 or 11 hours looking for these. Of course, they never found them. And Kittrell beat Pitts repeatedly with a blackjack up the side of his head. And when he was through and they couldn't find the bodies and they took him back, Pitts was in a state of semi-consciousness. He could barely talk. He could barely eat. His jaw in particular was hurting him terribly. And he was in that state for the entire month of August. If that is mm. unbelievable. He was just in a state of semi-consciousness. Willie May Lee was a young black resident of, of Port St. Joe, and she was arrested along with all a number of other black people. Which they, they rounded them all up and subjected to a series of lie detector tests, as was everyone else, and they accused her of the murder, and they finally broke her. And she said, all right, you know, I, I was there and so on, but I didn't actually do it. She said, I was with Pitts and, and Lee. Well, not, well, of course, that was the problem. She couldn't really decide on who, who was actually there. And she, she gave a very sketchy account of the murders. And she said it took place out of her presence. She heard some sounds and all. And then she said someone else besides Pitts and Lee were involved in these murders. And she said Lee wasn't there. Only uh, another guy was a, a, a fellow soldier of Pitts. And then she changed that altogether and said she didn't know anything about the case in a sworn <laughs> statement to the to the state attorney. They claimed she was an eyewitness. Well, of course she wasn't. She, they kept her in prison for the entire month of August. 
1963. They released her only when Pitts and Lee were, were sentenced to death. She was no eyewitness. She was terrorized just as much as Pitts and Lee. Right. Now, there's another person that we need to mention, and that person is Curtis Adams. Why is he an important person? Well, he's the real killer in this case. Mm -hmm. That's what's so ironic about it. Curtis Adams was white. He was the only person living in Gulf County at the time of this incident with a record for armed robbery. In fact, he was on parole for armed robbery. He was the logical suspect in this case. Hmm. And the police actually suspected him initially, but then they changed their mind and they decided this was a black on white killing based on virtually nothing. And they ignored Curtis Adams. Curtis Adams then escaped from Port St. Joe with his girlfriend and went to Fort Lauderdale where they lived for a while. And he committed another murder down in, in Fort Lauderdale, a carbon copy of the one he committed in Port St. Joe. He, again, he robbed an all-night gas station, took the attendant out of the country and murdered him mm. and, and, and took some money for them. Eventually, Adams was convicted of that murder in an investigation by the Broward County Sheriff's Office, and he got life imprisonment. Hmm. So justice partially was, was done. But he gave a complete confession to Warren Holmes, who had been hired by the state attorney's office there. Warren Holmes was a private polygraph examiner. They brought him in. They hired him to investigate this, help them investigate this case by uh, giving a lie detector test to the girlfriend, which he did, and then to the uh, Curtis Adams. And Curtis Adams completely confessed to this whole murder, and it was a, one of the most dramatic confessions. It was taped mm -hmm. that I've ever heard in my life. Wow. You indicate in the book that this case was riddled with racism. How so? Well, in the first place, the, the, the police rounded up all the black people that they thought had any connection with this case at all and kept them in custody, most of them anyway, for the entire month of August. There were white people in the station at that time. They didn't, they talked to them, but they never arrested them. The black people, however, that's the ones they picked on. And Pitsley was among some, some people that were there uh, prior to the holdup. Right. Curtis Adams, by the way, was hiding in the restroom when all this happened. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so when all the people left, he came out and, and robbed them and killed these people. But uh, that's the first thing. They just they just rounded up all the black. They treat them as if they had no rights at all. All of them, not just Pitts and Lee, everybody. everybody. They rounded them all up. And then tellingly, and this is this is so unusual. As I mentioned, Pitts was a, a private in the army. He thought the army could save him, and the army actually did send two CID investigators, Bruce Potts and Donald Hogue to come in and, and find out what, what was happening with Pitts. They were objective observers. They had no ax to grind, whatever. All they wanted to do was see Pitts, take a brief statement from him, and go back to Fort Rucker where they were stationed. But the police wouldn't let him see him. They gave him the runaround for a week. They wouldn't let Pitts. When they did see him, he was all beaten up, all beaten up, and he retracted his confession. And they were appalled at the racist and unprofessional way in which they were conducting this investigation. And they they relayed several incidents where this happened. 
And these were hardened police investigators. These were not defense lawyers. Ordinarily, when these things happen, the police, they do it in secret. They didn't do it in secret this time. This time, there were some people there, objective. They filed reports at the time, mm-hmm. and they were outraged at the way these, these men had been treated and the way they conducted this investigation. So these men that came to investigate, were they able to do anything to shift you know, what was going on for these two men? No, they weren't because... Well, civilian authorities in cases like this, when they arrest army personnel, they they have jurisdiction. The civil uh, the civil people have jurisdiction, so they really couldn't save mm-hmm. them. Pitts thought they could, yeah, but they couldn't. All they could do was take a statement from him, mm-hmm. saying he was innocent and that he was forced to make the confession that he did, and he was all beaten up and. Believe me, the police did not appreciate this one bit. No. And so they had a very difficult time getting out of the police station. They were uh, so mad at them. So at least, uh, at least they were able to document how badly beaten. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Both of them testified that Pitts had been subject to a savage physical beating. Right, right. In terms of forensic evidence, what kind of evidence was there, if any? An enormous impact. I think it's important for your listeners to understand that Pitts and Lee were in a state of terror for the entire month of August 1963. And that led to their many confessions to the police, to the police with our lawyer being present, and when he put them on the stand. And why do I say that? The trial judge, the trial judge in this case, W.O. Fitzpatrick, testified to just that. He said that when he saw these men in court, and he saw them several times, he said they looked like corpses, like black corpses. They were so frightened. Mm. He said, I've never seen a black person who was dead, a corpse, but that's what they look like, totally drained from the uh, blood from their face. They'd lost enormous weight. He said, I thought, they, maybe they thought I was going to kill them. He was so afraid. He felt deep sympathy for these people. Why were they so frightened? They were frightened because, I mean, it's obvious what they were frightened of. They were frightened about all of the, the ordeal that they were going through. Yeah. And, and the beatings that had taken place. Here's what they did with Lee. They told Lee that if he didn't confess, this was toward the end of their interrogations. He'd held out for a week. He said, if you don't confess, we're going to take your wife out and shave her hair and electrocute her. Oh, and they had Ella May Lee in custody, his wife, mm-hmm. for nothing, nothing. She had done nothing. She had no charge uh, ever filed against her, no order allowing the police to do that. They kept her in custody. So he knew mm-hmm. that they had her. Of course. And yeah. so he was so frightened about that. And for the rest of the month, that he confessed anything, and he did not want his wife to die. Sure. Now, that's how dire this case was. I have never seen a case like this in the 60 years I've been a member of the Florida Bar. This is the worst case I've ever seen. That's quite a statement. So with no motive and no solid physical or forensic evidence and no witnesses, the biggest factor I guessing that stands out are the false confessions. Would, would you agree? 
Yeah, there was no forensic evidence right. in the case at all. Is that what you're talking yes, about? Yes, yes. Yeah. The confessions. No, they brought in the Florida uh, uh, Sheriff's Bureau to conduct a forensic investigation, and they did what they could. They tried to match up the uh, the clothing that they'd taken from Pitts and I think from Lee as well, mm-hmm. and match it up with the, with the dirt at the scene. They found no match, whatever, and they did other types of investigation. They found no no. No forensic evidence at all. The, the entire case was confessions. Right. Built confessions from Benson Lee right. and the confession from Willie May Lee. Right, right. And they called her an eyewitness. I mean, she was as much terrified as he was. Oh, well, sure, that. of course. Defendants were. Yeah. So now we've kind of laid the groundwork for what happened after their arrest and while they were in custody. Um, we're a little short on on time, but you have said you'll come back and continue to tell us more about the case, which is I'm very pleased. There's still so much more to talk about. But now we're at the point where the case is going to trial. We haven't gotten there yet. Uh, what was the makeup of the jury? Was an all, are we talking about the 1963 trial? Yes. The August? yes. It was an all-wide jury. And this was not surprising because this has been going on for many years where blacks were treated as second-class citizens. They, they weren't allowed, to, in effect, they weren't allowed to serve on a jury. Very few blacks were allowed to get on the jury venire from which you selected. Some did, but of the, the, if, of the ones that, that did make the jury venire and did actually come to court as possible jurors, the prosecuting attorney always excluded them by using a peremptory challenge where she didn't have to give a reason. Hmm. So a white, a white jury was very common in those days. Yeah, very common. There were 14% black voters, by the way, in, in Gulf County at the time. Hmm. Yeah. Now, you use the term mercy trial. Can you explain what that term means? This is an unusual uh, procedure. Actually, Turner asked for this. He, he asked for this to take place. He pled them guilty uh, with no no plea deal, which is absolutely unheard of, that you would plead two clients to first-degree murder for which they could get the death penalty and have no agreement with the state that they would get life imprisonment. I mean, it's a classic act of, of legal malpractice. Mm-hmm. And instead, he said, well, what we'll have is a jury will come in and we'll listen and we'll see whether or not you're going to get uh, mercy or not. I mean, I so that's what, what that's what they call the, the mercy trial. Uh, but they'd already pled guilty. Right? right. Right. I guess we could close by saying that you've already indicated this, that the defendants were given a sentence of death. Uh, was there any alternative to that? sentence at all. Yes, they, they could have recommended life imprisonment, Okay, okay. which they didn't. Which and, they didn't. And it's not surprising. Turner presented no case for mercy. Yeah. You just put him on the stands and make whatever statement you want. Boy. And then he, and he made him confess again. Yeah. And, and they used that confession later when we eventually got a new trial. That's the confession they used, the in-court statement right. that right. Turner himself elicited. All right. Well, this would be a great 
place to end and then we have leave people hanging of course we know what happened which was a good a good ending i'm glad you said that at the beginning um, but there's more to the case uh, that i want you to share so uh, we'll pick it up next time on pursuing justice and thank you my listeners for tuning in today and please come back and uh, hear the other part of this very riveting case Thanks to Mr. Phil Hubbard for being with us today, and he'll be back next time. So join us on Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendale.